So obviously the most basic element of the gospel is salvation as evidenced in the life of Billy Graham. Salvation, the good news of salvation, that's clear. But what I want to do tonight, today, this morning, is tell you a little bit about my own experience with the gospel. How a burnout from Brooklyn, New York, joined the Marine Corps and went on to do certain things, powerful things, for the gospel. So the gospel is love, the gospel is power, and the gospel is persistence. First, the gospel is love. In one sense, it's a reckless love, like the story of the prodigal son, right? We all know the pro pro story of the prodigal son. The younger brother takes all his inheritance, wastes it away, comes back to the dad, and dad forgives him. Not only does he forgive him, he throws him a party. Where's the justice, right? Where's the punishment? I told you so. No, none, none of that. Only forgiveness. I had this experience of God's reckless love probably like 30 years ago. I was a graduate assistant at a Regent University. I was getting my master's degree. And I was one, it was one of several offices in the area and outside of the office areas they had this couch where people waited to go in to see whoever they were going to see. And they had a TV set and you know, it's Regent University so you can imagine what's on the TV set, 700 Club every day, 700 Club, 700 Club. So I'm a little bit cynical after a while because you know the testimonies on the 700 Club, it's always something positive. Somebody always gets healed of cancer. Somebody, oh, their marriage always works out. We know that's not the way it is. We know for Christians, life sometimes is really hard. So I'm cynical, right? So one day I'm in my office and I'm, I, I hear it, but I don't pay attention to it. But in this case, I hear one of the testimonies. The testimony is this guy's on death row. You know what's coming, right? Death row. So this guy, was on death row because he killed a cop. He was in some high-speed chase with the cop, turned into a shooting battle. Uh, he was on a, motor, a motorcycle, the motorcycle spun out. He turns around, shoots the cop dead, and he goes to trial, and he gets the death penalty. Sure enough, what happens? He's on death row, and the pastor comes visit him and says, you're gonna become a Christian. Okay, he becomes a Christian. Then what? You're going to get out of jail. Not only are you going to get out of death row, but you're going to get out of jail. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm sitting there writing and I'm saying, come on. That is ridiculous. Sure enough, he gets out of jail. He gets out on a self-defense you know, argument, a self-defense. So I'm standing there and I'm like, that is outrageous. That shouldn't happen. Sure enough, as I am sitting there, honestly, I hear a voice. Do not condemn who I forgive. Do not condemn who I forgive. Whoa, that's the power of God. I'll tell you, I still am uncomfortable with that, the idea that that guy got off. But that's me. God is the forgiver. God shows reckless love, reckless compassion. But there's also an aspect of God's love that's disciplinary. Proverbs 3.12. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines like a father. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now, I was a burnout in Brooklyn, New York. Basically, 
teenage burnout, you know, long hair, hippie degenerate, you know, that, that was me. And you'll see, take a look at that picture. I mean, that, is that, I mean, where, I don't even know where I'm at, right? It's, that's what it looks like, right? So long hair is a big thing in those days. You got to have long hair. A lot of my friends came from rough backgrounds and they ran away from home. Parents were alcoholics and stuff like that. And I thought running away was like the coolest thing in the world, you know? But I had a problem. My parents loved me. I had no reason to run away. <laughs> I had no reason. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, what can I do? How can I run away from home? What excuse can I use? My mom, I would come home every once in a while, my mom would be like, get a haircut. I can't stay your face. I can't stand it anymore. The light bulb goes off. I'm going to run away from home so I don't have to get a haircut. Yeah. Yep. That's what I did. So, of course, running away from home is not cracked up to what it is. What you think it is, you know, I'm sleeping on park benches and it's horrible. But I'm determined that I'm going to stay out. I am determined that I'm going to make it through. So my third day out, I'm with another runaway, my friend Timmy. We're walking along the street, and now you can imagine this part of my life is like a film in my mind. I can remember the details, everything about it. We're walking along, and he goes, all I want for my birthday, it's his birthday that day, all I want for my birthday is a veal parmesan hero. As he says that, I hear, Vincent! My dad. It's a New York City cop. He's coming at me with steam coming out of his ears. And I don't know what to do. I'm like, should I run? Should I stay? Should I run? Should I stay? I run, but I'm so nervous I trip over my own feet in the middle of the street. Cars come to a screeching halt. He's pounding on me in the middle of the street, screaming. He grabs me, throws me into the car, takes me home. And this classic scene in my house, I got this pillow and I'm dodging the blows. And he's screaming, I'll see you dead in the street before you ruin this family. My mom and my sister, they got their fingers in their mouth. They're like, don't hit him anymore. Don't hit him anymore. Needless to say, I never ran away again. But what does that say? My father wasn't indifferent. He loved me. He cared about me. I had friends that were out on the street for months because their parents were indifferent. Now, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's unbelievable. That's real passion. Reckless forgiveness and yet discipline. That's the love of God. Well, the love of God is also powerful. And that's evident in my testimony. Uh, Romans 1.16. It's the power of God unto salvation, the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. So I uh, spent a few years as a burnout. And then I joined the Marine Corps. Now you've got to ask the question, why does a burnout from Brooklyn join the Marine Corps, right? It's a little odd, a little strange. Well, I was with my friend. There you go. I was with my friend. Uh, he was going to check out the um, Air Force. And I walk by the Marine Corps recruiter, and I see those dress blues. And I say, that is the coolest uniform I have ever seen. Yeah, I joined the Marine Corps just to wear that uniform because I thought it was the coolest thing to do. So I go through boot camp. And my first duty station, I become a prison guard. My first duty station is Okinawa. Not much to do in Okinawa. Small island, 67 miles long, 2 to 18 miles wide. Racquetball, movies. 
Movies, racquetball, work. That's it. Back and forth. There's nothing much to do. Uh, so one of the things, especially on night shift, you know, if I'm um, working the night shift at the prison, is I read. So I happen to go into the prison library and I pull out a book called Crossing a Switchblade. Some of you might know that book. It's a story of a Pennsylvania pastor who goes into downtown Brooklyn in the 60s and preaches to street gangs. And these street gangs were tough. They were stabbing each other, killing each other. And this guy starts witnessing and they become Christians. Now the oddest thing is happening. I'm not a Christian. And I feel myself rooting for these people to become Christians. I'm like, I'm like, man, I hope he becomes a Christian. I'm like, why do I think that? Why do I hope he becomes a Christian? I'm not a Christian. I couldn't figure it out in my mind, but I found myself rooting for it to happen. At the same time, one of our uh, jobs was that we had to bring prisoners that were about to get out of jail. They had to go to counseling. So we would go up, we'd set them in this room, and they, a counselor would come in. And we had to, the, room, the door had to stay open. We had to stand outside a parade rest, ready for something like anything could happen. And uh, so the... Uh, the staff sergeant there, he starts witnessing to these guys. First, he's like, he goes, what are you going to do when you get out? You know, Jesus could change your life. You need to accept Jesus as your personal savior. So I'm with my friends, Al, Moose, and Toby. We start talking about this because we all had took turns doing that. And we're like, yeah, that guy's kind of cool. He, he's really trying to help the, uh, the prisoners. Of course, then he starts witnessing to us, right? We go to this one event and he, that he has at the prison. It was the most boring thing in the world. We were like, no, please, no more. So... Time goes on, and I happen to go to the prison library again. And I happen to pull out another book called Run, Baby, Run. This is a sequel to Crossing the Switchblade. How, I, I didn't look for it. I just happened to glance. I pull up the book and Run, Baby, Run. I'm reading it. I'm like, whoa, this is the sequel. One of the guys that uh, Pastor Wilkerson converted uh, became this great preacher, Nicky Cruz. And it was his testimony. And now here I am again, totally absorbed in the book. Like, oh, this is awesome. He's a Christian. And I, I finished the book and I'm like, what's the big deal? I mean, I, you know, I'm not a Christian. So it, I got to the point where I was like, you know, uh, the gospel's the right thing, but I'm going to wait. I'm not going to do it right now. So we were at the squad bay one night, me and uh, our, our, the other guys, Johnny and Al and Toby, we're standing there, and all of a sudden, this Christian staff sergeant comes in, and he says, uh, you ready to go, Johnny? I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm going to go get some more questions answered. So I'm like, well, it's, Nicol it's, it's uh, Okinawa, so might as well go. There's nothing to do. We go. The two guys, Al and Johnny, go into another room with um, the staff sergeant, and we are sitting outside. Me and Toby are sitting outside playing a game. So this other guy comes up to us. We're going to have Bible study now. So we go. And I can remember the Bible study very clearly. Uh, Book of James, don't treat anybody special over yourself. Treat everybody equally. Bible study ends, and the prayer comes. Of course, he general prayer, and then all of a sudden he says, and if there's anybody here that wants to accept Jesus Christ as a personal Savior, raise your hand. So, not, what, what, nine seconds probably, but an eternity for me. I am not raising my hand. Oh, yeah, you're raising your hand. No. I am not raising my hand. I mean, this struggle that seemed to go on for eternity. What is my hand doing up? I, I'm looking, I'm like, I can't believe this. He finishes his prayer and he says, he goes, okay, everybody can leave except for the people that raised their hand. I'm thinking, oh, the moose is going to think I'm crazy. Toby, everybody leaves but him. I'm like, no way. You're gonna... So we both receive Christ, praise a prayer. We go outside. The Christian staff sergeant goes to the guy that led us to the Lord. He goes, meet two new brothers in the Lord. He goes, these guys too. Then there's this moment, 
right? We're looking at each other, all four of us, like, right? And this, it's a Pentecostal uh, group, right? Big, heavy guy. Just when he hears that, he sees it all. He goes, hallelujah. He just goes insane, starts speaking in tongues. And I didn't know what was going on. I had no concept of what I'd done. I had no understanding of the death of Christ on the cross, any of this stuff. I had no real concept of it. But I felt the power of God. Wow, did I feel it. I was like, whoa, this is unbelievable. What is going on? So sure enough, Pentecostal, they sit us down. And they're like, the devil's going to get you. The devil is going to take you away. He's going to try. You've got to resist the devil. I'm like, yeah, yeah, the devil, the devil, sure. So we go back to the squad bay. Now, we're prison guards, right? You can't have alcohol in the squad bay. I'd been there for 12 months. I'd never seen alcohol in the squad bay. We go in there, and there's this gigantic keg in the middle of the squad bay. And everybody's bummed. Everybody's drunk. And they're like, yeah, come on, join us. Where have you guys been? We're like, well, we became Christians. I mean, it was like we said we stabbed somebody. You became crazy. like cursing the foulest things you could ever imagine. And I'm looking at this happening, and in my ear, what do I hear? The devil's gonna get you. I'm like, whoa, it's true. So, I mean, I could think of those moments, like when I started witnessing and sharing my faith, how the power of the Holy Spirit would take over, and I would be like, it's not me talking. You know, it's like, this is the power of the gospel that could take this. Burn out from Brooklyn and change his life so drastically through the Marine Corps and on. Unbelievable, the power of the gospel. Finally, the persistence of the gospel. Now, the persistence of the gospel and the power are really interrelated. Because you think about the, the, the persistence, first of all. So there's a great uh, poem by Francis Thompson. It's like 182 lines, but I'm just going to read a synopsis of it. It's called the hound of heaven, how God seeks you out. There's a persistence involved in it. As the hound never ceases to follow the hare, God follows the fleeing soul. It's me. And though it seeks to hide itself, divine grace follows after, follows ever after, till the soul feels its pressure, forcing it to turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. There's this persistence in the gospel. But also, there's this persistence in the Christian life. Something that we can learn from this persistence that we, that we experience in salvation. So, I was in Ukraine with uh, Travis Simone, Michael's son. He was in college at the time. And we were on a mission trip working with kids at a summer camp. So, uh, we left the camp one night, and we were walking down the street, taking a break. We were with our translator, Russian translator, and uh, we saw some people begging. Now, this is totally common all over the streets in Odessa that there's people begging all the time, gypsies mostly. This one gypsy woman had this girl, a uh, two-year-old, two-year-old girl. So we're, we look at her, and I mean, it's striking what this girl has this burn that starts down her face. You could see it there. Look at that. A severe burn that comes down her. And you can't see it. It goes all the way down her body. Really severe. But her face is okay, right? And she's got the cutest little face. And she's like totally ignorant 
of the way she looks at two years old. She gets this big smile on her face. So immediately I'm totally drawn to her. I'm like, oh, that's unbelievable. So we talk to the um, woman and we say, you know, she says, well, I'm trying to get some uh, money to get an operation for her. We don't even know if it's really her mom. We don't know any of this. So we say, well, you know what? Let's, let's go to the plastic surgery place here. I know the doctor there. We go. The doctor takes one look at her and says, we don't have the equipment for anything like this. You'd have to take it to the States. So we do, or we attempt to do that. I go back, try to get everything in place. She gave me some contact info that I lose. I lose the contact info. So I am totally guilt-ridden. So we go back, Travis and I, go back in winter of 99. I've got all my translators looking for her, like, you know, train stations, shelters. No, can't find her. Spring of 2000, same thing, can't find her. In summer of 2000, we go to Moldova because she said she was from Moldova. She had come here to get the operation. I mean, she had come to Ukraine to get the operation. And uh, we go there, we go to Potesti, Moldova, and we show her a picture around. Family, you know, it's a small town that the town doctor comes out and says, no, she's not from here. I would have known it. Fail. I fail, right? I can't find her. Eventually, all the pressing needs are come back to me with all the other kids. I mean, 400 kids in one orphanage, 350 kids in another orphanage. So many kids and so many needs that they overwhelm me, and I think less and less of her. You know, I keep saying, please look for her, please look for her. No. Years go by, every once in a while, as I'm laying my uh, head on my pillow, I think, oh, I wonder what happened to her. I wonder if she's okay. 2007, 2008, 2009. January of 2009, I go to Ukraine on a Christmas wish program. So Christmas wish is where we take the kids out uh, to buy gifts for themselves. You can imagine how great it is for these kids to be able to go buy their own gifts, something they would never get to do normally. And uh, I'm in a rush because we take a lot of kids every day. We have to get all the kids in. So I'm about to leave the hotel, and this woman that runs the hotel stops me in the hallway, and she goes, hey, you work with children? I said, yes. She goes, do you do medical visas? I said, yeah, we can do medical visas. She goes, do you do burn victims? And I said, yeah, we can do anything. It's just, you know, it's a medical visa. And then she goes, well, you do, do you do something with, like, a burn on the head? So now my first thought is, like, you might get if you see a lottery ticket and you got the first number. Right? You, you look at it and you go, oh, I got the first number. There's a possibility. Right? So in the corner of my mind, you know, 95% is like, no way. But there's 5% that says, is it possible? Is this actually possible? She, I said, is it, is it the whole head or just partially? Or partially. She goes, partial. Now I got the second number. I'm like, really? I said, you got to show me a picture of this kid. So I'm walking towards the office thinking to myself, is it possible, but mostly thinking there's no way. She opens up the album. I look at that picture, and I recognize her. She's 12 years old now, but I recognize her right away. I'm like, you're not going to believe this. I have been looking for this girl for 10 years. I said, that is unbelievable that I found her. And now, I don't quite hear the voice of God. I hear something like this, uh-huh, <laughs> you see, <laughs> you see what persistence does? I was there the whole time. That is power. That's persistence. That is unbelievable. Well, needless to say, I, 
I did it this time, summer of 2000, she came for her first operation. She came two more times. The third time she came, she met a family that adopted her. She went to ODU. She met a guy from the Navy, and she got married, and they live in Norfolk. And they have a little child. Yeah. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search out my sheep. I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and rescue them. That is powerful. There's another thing that I always think of, another scripture, Ecclesiastes. Sow your seed in the morning. And at the evening, don't let your hands be idle, for you never know what's going to succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Wow. Wow. So I want to conclude with uh, a quote from the song that you heard, Show the Way, by Dave Wilcox. So Dave is talking about the spiritual world behind the physical world and what's holding up the physical world. It's love who mixed the mortar. And it's love who stacked these stones. And it's love who made the stage here, although it looks like we're alone. In this scene set in shadows, like the night is here to stay, there's evil cast around us. But it's love that wrote the play. And in this darkness, love will show the way. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the love of the gospel for the power of the gospel and the persistence of the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.